This is the Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 52. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 52 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. Yes, it's been a while since I released a new podcast, but I am glad to be back. And the intention is to again produce podcasts on a regular basis. So if you like, you can think of this as the first episode of the second season. My guest today is John Bow. John is a British military veteran with PTSD. And what follows is a candid discussion about John's condition, how it manifested itself and how he came to realise he found solace in time spent in nature, especially in the woods. This ultimately led to a second career as a bushcraft instructor, delivering courses through Wildway Bushcraft based in the southwest of the UK. Having John join me on this podcast was also a good opportunity to discuss aspects of John's experience in establishing himself as a bushcraft instructor and starting his own bushcraft school and to draw out some broader lessons for those looking perhaps for a pathway into bushcraft instruction, whether they're young people or whether they're people looking for a career switch. So let's get into the conversation. I hope you find it interesting. I hope you find it illuminating and perhaps even inspirational. I'm very, very happy to welcome John Bow to the Paul Kirtley podcast. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Paul. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good. Now, we've, we've got to know each other a little bit recently because we've been doing some live streams for your Instagram feed but it's great to sort of reciprocate and for me to host you and come on the Paul Kirtley podcast. And actually, it's something we, we've we been talking about for quite a while, isn't it? You you contacted me a while ago and had a suggestion for something to talk about as a, as a topic. And I thought that was a good one. But we've now finally got around to, to having that conversation. So I'm really, really pleased and really happy. Shall we start by just letting people know a little bit about your background, John, so they've got some context for the conversation. So how how did how did we get to where we are now in having this conversation let's let's try to phrase it that way <laughs> let's go from there yeah <laughs> um so i i'm a military veteran uh i was i was did um eight years service in the royal air force uh i left of my own fruition and then struggled in civvy street for sort of three years and then re-enlisted into the army um because i'm a sadomasochist I think <laughs> um, and then I had a, basically I did four years in the army but I, I basically in the army had a mental breakdown um, I was suffering from something called post-traumatic stress disorder uh, from from service within the air force um, I, over the, the period of the sort of Iraq Afghanistan conflict so um, over the space of five years I ended up doing four tours of or three tours of Iraq two of one one of Afghan um, and then in and out, in and out of various different theatres of operations and and all that sort of stuff. And um, yeah, it was a, basically a, a step that led me to a journey through mental health issues, um, re- really sort of quite dark and desperate ones, really. Um, until I've <clears throat> sort of got help and found found my feet on the other side and um, ended up starting Huawei Bushcraft. So. Um, the mental health and the, the bushcraft stuff is 
super sort of close to my heart is that it's the the driving factor really between before but like we're pushing on with not only with the company but more personal development through bushcraft and wilderness living and all that sort of stuff so um when i was trying to sort of make contacts and get myself out there and push this message of how bushcraft or how beneficial i found the wilderness let's say or the or woodlands um i'd listen to your podcast and you seemed like you, you had the loudest sort of platform that i'd found so yeah dropped you a line <laughs> and um, and for anyway yeah just keep pestering paul basically and uh, and, it, and, it, and it happens well you didn't really have to pester me but um no i mean I, I i was aware of you before you before you contacted me actually um and i'd seen wild way I'd, i was aware of wild way not from a not from a, oh here's another competitor point of view i'm just i'm always interested to see people appear on the scene and and do things well and i've said this to you before yeah you know, we never actually met in person but from the outside in um with some you know insider you know i've got some idea of how these things work from the inside as well yeah, so you've yeah. always got a slightly you've always got a slightly more um informed view even when you're looking at something from the outside it always seemed to me that you were doing things right from from the start and doing things professionally and and it all looked good at Wildway, and I think we can talk about that a little bit more later because I think there's a there's a I think there's an interesting question that you quite possibly get asked a lot, and I certainly get asked a lot, especially from young people, but not just from young people, also people who are maybe changing career, coming out of the military, they're you know they've had enough of working in an office, whatever it is, people ask questions about getting into bushcraft as a career either part-time or full-time and I think that's something that we can maybe explore a bit later on because it'll be a nice case study of yeah of you, of you doing that but if it's not too painful can we sort of explore a little bit how 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 did this sort of first start to manifest itself to PTSD and yeah yeah <clears throat> clearly you came out of the air force and then you had a bit of time in Civvy Street was it then, but you didn't realise, or was it when you went back into the military that it really came to the fore? Yeah, so um, I um, I started to sort of they the, the the psychiatrist or psychologist or whatever they're called these days they diagnosed it dating back to two thousand three. Um, to add a li just a little bit of background, I joined the forces in two thousand. Um, I was an eighteen year old lad. I joined a very you know I joined the Royal Air Force Police. It was very great everyone you know it was amazing everyone wore a blue suit every night was party night and um, there was very little work going on um in regards to sort of frontline combat type stuff mm -hmm. um or or you know theater operations it was you know there was northern ireland but there wasn't really anything else going on um and then obviously that fateful day where those morons um flew those planes into those twin towers mm -hmm. it literally changed overnight um and we went from i went from sort of blue suit into combat so i got posted i asked to be posted onto a, a unit called the tactical provost wing which is the the royal air force police's sort of ready quick deployment um unit that that headed out and did all these sort of lines of communication policing which is basically just making sure that stuff gets from a to b um and then um we, I was deployed into Iraq in two far, end of 2003, so the, the initial conflict had happened. And then um, we went out on the first, what's called a rollmont, so the troops swapping over. And, and things started to happen that I really wasn't prepared for. There was 
the first incident that I was involved with, I was stood up on a, in the back of a Land Rover um, and driving along a road, and I was talking to my sergeant at the time, saying there's a child, there is, there's, a, there's a child, he must have been no older than sort of eight, with a, with a weapon, like, and he's literally pointing his weapon at us. Um, and I was asking him, you know, what do you want me to do? Because I know what my rules of engagement are. What, what should I be doing now? Because I'm, I'm a 20-year-old bloke, and I'm, I don't really want to be opening fire on a child. Um, and these sort of incidents started to, to build up. We were regularly mortared. Um, there was um, IEDs going off left, right, and center. Um, but we came away from that tour relatively sort of everything was happy, everything was fine. Um, and progressively as the tours went on and, 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 uh, of operations sort of developed and, you know, the, the enemy, enemy terrorists, freedom fighters, whatever you want, your political persuasion, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're wearing the wrong color uniform and that was it. That was just a job. Mm-hmm. Um, only they didn't wear uniform, which made the whole thing a lot more complicated. Mm. Um, by 2006, I'd I'd snapped, I'd cracked. My uh, my nickname was Jonah, which is some reference to a Bible character that basically wherever he's about, it, something would go wrong. So if there was an incident, it would appear that it would I would be at the centre of it somehow, um, or I, it would happen when I was on duty. Um, and I I went back to the UK, and I basically first thing I did when the second day I got back is I went to see my boss at the time said look I, something's not right like, I can't I can't cope I'm having these horrific nightmares um, I'm getting angry I'm losing my temper um, I don't want to go out anywhere you know I, at the time I was like sort of life and soul you know I'd be the first to the pub through the, the last one out and mm-hmm. you know playing rugby for for the, for the RAF camps and everything was great I was quite a social character um, but I couldn't stand the, the, the thought of it um so he sent me to a GP off camp, um, psychologist, and he basically turned around and said, there's nothing wrong with you. Just go out, decompress, have a few drinks, get in a fight if you need to, get out of your system, and then go back to work. Um, so I I did that. I didn't get in a fight, <laughs> but I went out, had a few drinks, um, tried to decompress, and then they said to me that you're going to be deployed again and I, I, I've been per- perfectly honest with anybody literally people listen to this I just couldn't face it mm. I just didn't have it in me I was I was fearful um, of what might happen to me I was fearful about what I might do to someone that didn't necessarily deserve it mm. um, the what worried me the most was that I'd convinced myself that I was either going to overreact and and um, and sort of say, oh, take, let's go worst case scenario, overreact and take the life of someone that that wasn't doing what I deem them to be doing, or underreact, um, and it cost my colleagues, you know, a serious injury. Or, or so it was quite a sort of a serious weight. So I left. I just left. I just put my papers in and just disappeared in Civvy Street. Um, and then the the sort of demons came fully unleashed um i i went from job to job i i did some security 
Um, so security work, I did some sort of management of security. I, I tried to change completely. I worked in a boatyard, moving in, in, in Pool Harbour, um, moving boats around and stuff like that. And things would always be really good for about six months. Walk away, I was getting used to everything. And then all of a sudden, it would just, I just couldn't. I would find people very frustrating really 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 frustrating i remember when we one incident where i was on a I was on a forklift and there was just no command and control of this job we were lifting this boat out and i turned around and i was like i don't get paid enough for this i mean i can't do it you just i couldn't operate it really couldn't function um and then i saw a job for the the army and i thought well maybe that'll cure all i'll go back in i'll get a green suit on again um i'll I'll get back in the role and it, it will shake it out of me. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, I've heard from quite a lot of ex-military guys over the years that they regularly find it difficult to operate back in Civvy Street because civvies are not used to the chain of command. They're not used to things being organised very well. And I think a, a lot of military guys struggle just with that when they come back out and they're working with people who've got opinions where they should just get on with their job or, or whatever, <laughs> or they, they you ask them to do something and th they have a different view of it, whereas that wouldn't happen in the military necessarily. Although, yeah. you know, depends on what sort of units you're in, of course. But, you know, there's, there's a chain of command, isn't there, where that isn't necessarily as strong in civilian organisations. And I think a lot of guys struggle with that. So was it that that you thought you were struggling with at that point? Or did you at that point think there was more to it than that? Yeah, I thought, I thought it was... Um... I thought it was that, you know, mm. I, I remember sat around my very first job uh, in a factory, essentially. It was a, they made, I was, um, I had a job as a loss prevention officer, which basically stopped things going missing. I worked in, it was a, it was a pie factory. It was the first job in Civvy Street. I, I, you know, I'd never worked in Civvy Street before. And I sat around as a, the sort of manager of the loss prevention team. I remember sat around this boardroom with all these people in suits and shirts and ties and all sort of, you know, looking very serious about life, discussing loss margins on sausage rolls and pies. <laughs> and I was just, and they came to me and they said, oh, we've lost like 2% of the prime steak that's gone missing out of the freezer. And, you know, what are your team going to do about it? And I just turned around and just, so they're just, it's just, they're just making pies, gents. Mm. Just make some more pies. <laughs> it's really struggled. <laughs> like, what? I don't know. Six months ago, you know, I was making life and death decisions and now you're telling me that someone's nicked a sirloin out of a fridge. It all seemed really sort of so inconsequential and so trivial. Uh -huh. um, that was, so that was, that's what I thought I was dealing with. It was just sort of felt like I was longing back for a place and a meaning. But yeah, the, I was like, I, I really don't. I didn't, like, I didn't last very long in that job. Mm. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what I thought it was. My wife, luckily for me, was a, a military nurse. She was a nurse in the Royal Air Force. So she'd been sort of keeping tabs on me in the background, unbeknownst to me. Um, but we, she was going through her own stuff. You know, we had a son that was born premature and within that period. So she had her own sort of stuff to deal with. And then, yeah, and then um, I just thought it was, you know, I was talking to military friends going like, you know, civvies are just doing my head in. They're just, you know, there's no, they're just, yeah, they're running around like headless chickens. And I, and I genuinely thought that's what it was um, until I joined the army again. Mm. And again, everything was good for about uh, about a year, and then things really started to get worse. I was having visual flashbacks during the day, 
um, which I've never experienced before. And I know that you see them on movies that depict someone having a sort of flashback, but um, that's probably the best way that I could sort of describe them. There was a, um, a an incident I was sent on guard duty at, at a camp in, uh, in Dorset, in Blan- Blanford camp. And um, I was stood there, you know, nice summer's day. Everything was hunky-dory. Stood on the, stood doing cover guard with a rifle, and nothing was happening. It was just, you know, nothing that's going to happen in Blanford. The next thing I remember is looking around, and I wasn't at Blanford. I was back in Iraq. All the, the, the scenery. It was, it was bizarre. It was like someone just put a blindfold on me, picked me up, put me in Iraq, took a blindfold off, and go, there you go. Um, and that that shook me up massively. Um, I was becoming sort of super agitated. I was having these flashbacks. These nightmares were getting worse. Night night sweats were just in, like wake up soaking wet like, from head to, to, to toe like I'd just been in a shower. I was becoming more and more recluse, scared of everything. Um, and it was at that point where I came home to my wife and said, something's not, I've got to do something about this. I don't understand. And she was like, look, you need to go to the doctor and, again and see what happens. So I went to the G- so I went to the SMO on camp, um, the station medical officer on camp, and basically told him everything. And he he took he took one look at me and he said, "Well, you've got two choices." He said, "You can either walk out this door now, and we can pretend this conversation never happened, which I thought was odd in itself, um, or we can flag this up. You can go to the Department of Mental Health at Tidworth." Um, but I guarantee your career will be over. And um, there was no choice for me. It was just like, look, I can't deal with this anymore. I was, you know, I was beginning to have serious thoughts about sort of suicide. Um, and I thought, I've got to flag it up. I've got to get help. Um, so I sort of, I went and got help and I walked into the DTMH at Tidworth and, it, and spilled my guts over the space of about two and a half hours and the nurse is massive, absolutely sort of monster of a man from Jamaica. He was such a, a larger-than-life character. And he just sat there and giggled in this sort of Jamaican accent. And I was thinking, what the hell is going on? So I was like, talk about the lunatics have taken over the asylum. And he was like, I've seen this so many times. Like, You've got something called post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and he's like, have you ever heard it? And I was like, never heard of it. He's like, well, in World War One." it was called shell shot and they would have taken you out the back and shot you. I was like, well, hopefully we've moved on a little bit. (laughs) Um, and that was it. I never went back to work. I never, I'd had two years therapy, um, lots of help from charity, um, uh, supporting wounded veterans and, and help for heroes. And I went through various programs and I went through various therapy sessions, none of which cured it the PTSD um, stopped me feeling the way I was feeling. I was put on medication to which I still take to this day. I mean, I've been on medication now for best part of nine years. I think. Um, and I still have issues. You know, I still have these um, physical nightmares. I still have night sweats. Um, I still, you, you will never get me in a nightclub. Mm. You know, I just, I just won't do it. It's just not, it's not, I just physically can't bring myself to do it. Um, but I've now learned managing techniques, which, you know, um, 
which are great. So I, I can sort of manage it. I got myself, uh, I had an assistance dog at one point, which I trained, which gave me focus um, to train up with another charity, Veterans with Dogs. So I had lots of help throughout this period. Um, and I was finding that actually my little safe, safe, happy place was the, the woodland, was the forest, was solitude on my own, was just, you know, being out in nature, um, which my wife actively encouraged. Um, yeah, and then I kind of just sort of learned to cope with it, as it were, um, and then found that actually the woodland and the nature was um, was the best thing for me. Mm. So were you finding that being out in the woods, being out in green spaces, was alleviating some of the the feelings and anxiety and agitation or, or however it was manifesting itself otherwise? Was it... Yeah. When, it, how did uh, you become aware that that was therapeutic to you? Well, it was through the, the the sort of early days of the PTSD. I went on a I went on a course with my with a mate um, down in Devon, and it was just a weekend sort of bushcraft course. And it was just it was just great. It was just I, I I knew I loved the outdoors anyway. I've always been into the outdoors, like kayaking, canoeing, all that sort of stuff. Your traditional outdoors stuff. Mm climbing and all that you know um and i'd always had a, a real personal interest in sort of indigenous tribes and native americans were a massive fascination growing up and um you know the, the stories of robin hood because i grew up in around nottingham so that i'd always i always knew that nature was where i liked to be um but i never realized how beneficial it was to me until sort of until I used to go out there on my own. And it was it was great because I could go out to the woods on my own and I could, you know, I could just look at stuff that I would have been maybe not ridiculed, but I had the piss taken out of me in the past. You know, if I'd have turned around to my military colleagues and gone, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to go and just sort of like sit underneath an oak tree and watch the squirrels run about. Mm-hmm. I'd have been absolutely ruined. Um, so it was quite nice to just go, you know what? This is what I like. I, I quite like this. It's nice, you know. Um, so, yeah, it was just a dawning realization that actually being in nature, but also being able to utilize nature to to make things, was like the perfect, you know, was a. It was the perfect activity. It kept my hands busy. Like, I still have a massive addiction to making string. Whenever I can get a bit of like a bit of something, I will make cord. I get the, the mick taken out of me by my wife. I get the mick taken out of me by the lads at work. But I'm constantly making string. Um, and it's just that it's that mind, active mindfulness. I think is the way it was described to me. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that the peace, the quiet, the the green. Um, the green woodland is as far removed from the desert as you can obviously get. Um, so that was quite nice to have a physical sort of barrier. And then the crafty stuff, you know, um, and the fire sitting around a campfire and just contemplating. And, it, uh, and I learned that I could acknowledge the feelings I was having, register the feelings and accept that these were okay and not have to hide them, you know, not have to hide that actually, you know, that my legs were twitching and I was developing a spell because I, I, I developed a speech impediment. I, I had this horrific stutter. Like whenever someone would ask me about like an incident, but I wouldn't have been able to do this chat now mm. 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. 
by no stretch. I just wouldn't. We'd have just. I'd just been going. Duh, 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 duh. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So it was kind of sort of. I, I don't know when it. I can't put like a medical term on on it. It just it just helped. It just did. Mm-hmm. Um. Without trying to overanalyze it too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. you, be, you became aware that it was helping, and you had yeah, that, massively, and you had that experience on the on the bushcraft course. So where did it go next with the bushcraft interest? Um, well, I I was rapidly running out of time left in the forces, and I thought to myself, I need to do something. I don't. I learned my lesson that I couldn't. I, I couldn't work for somebody else. Um, I needed to be able to manage my mental health. I needed to be able to be in control of my sort of diary. And if I woke up in the morning and was having, like, I had a horrific night or um, I needed to be able to be the master of my own destiny and pull myself away from that situation just for my own sort of benefit. So the I sort of made the decision that I was going to try and incorporate nature and bushcraft or you know whatever you however you want to term it as some form of job and my initial thoughts were I'll become a freelance sort of instructor um I was very very fortunate that the pension scheme I was on because I was medically discharged I get a sort of a residual income from from a from a medical pension um so a lot of the financial worries were sort of taken on I knew straight away that the mortgage was going to get paid I knew that you know, my son would have shoes and there'd be food on the table. So um, at the very bare minimum, that, that stress was taken off, which I do appreciate. I'm extremely fortunate as a veteran in that in that situation. Um, so it was, well, well I'm going to become a freelance instructor. So I went on a few more courses and the one day stuff here and one day stuff there and um, continuing the personal study that I'd done throughout everything for, for my whole sort of life anyway. And um rapidly sort of dawned on me that if I was to make this work I had needed to do it for myself mm-hmm. there was I you know there are people whose courses I went on they um, were sort of you know they were they were good for what they were but I, I felt that I could delve into the subjects more um, and and give a bit more of added value and I'm not trying to sound like a sort of um, like a sort of egotistical knobhead I just it really was I needed to be in control of the whole project so I mean it needed to be me driving it just because of my own sort of mental health the own, my own head um which is where the sort of concept of wildway was started um and I thought well even if I my, my initial thoughts were like even if I if I if I get a, if I fill a course a weekend course let's say for with 10 people and I charge 150 quid per person and that gives me sort of 1500 quid 500 quid on cost that's me done that's a grand a month that tops up the pension job's done um little did I know that trying to fill a course with 10 people is <laughs> uh, quite a tricky thing you know especially with the, the amount of companies within the amount of people doing it within the UK and obviously <clears throat> there's serious um established companies like obviously woodland ways and yourself with frontier and you're not to mention sort of the man whose name won't be mentioned and all that sort of stuff um it was um 
yeah, it, it was tricky. It was it was tricky. He was like, oh, and and who is this guy? Who's this guy that just rocks up out of nowhere? Um, no one heard of me, you know. Not I just was sat here in Dorset doing my own little thing, you know, um, building up a sort of a, a local local thing, really. And and that, and that was it. And it just kind of developed from there. Um, I I don't even now. I don't have a, I have a rough a rough and I mean very rough fluid path I where I want to get to but if one thing I've learned at getting to this point now is that basically I just I just take every day as it comes because I don't know when something is going to trigger me off and set me back for a week Do you know you know mm-hmm. so um so yeah so I live my life very fluidly which is liberating in itself mm-hmm. frustrating for other people but <laughs> liberating for me um and and that's that's sort of the, the main the main thing really so did you did you feel at all deterred at any point when you first started or did you just feel determined to 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 make it work right from the beginning um, yeah i felt determined to make it work um purely for the fact that i you know the, the the fear of of the mental health thing having a mental health problem exacerbates um exacerbated all the other issues so like fear of failure and um I was like, well, if I fail at this, that means that, that, that's the PTSD that's got another thing over the top of me, you know. Mm. Um, it's so not wanting to let myself down, not wanting to let my wife down. I'd invested a lot of money um, in sort of teaching equipment and, you know, you know, buying student axes is the best part of a grand in itself. So I'd, I'd invested a lot of personal money. Um, I'd also had a lot of help from a lot of people like the, the supporting wounded veterans of literally that charity is, is they used to be called skiing with heroes, but now called supporting wounded veterans. They literally saved my life. And I, I cannot sort of emphasize that enough is that I, I was, I'd, I'd scoped out the tree to hang the rope. Mm. You know, I, it was there. I'd done it. I, I, I tried to drive off a bridge, um, but the bridge was quite short, unbeknownst to me. By the time I'd like gone like that, I was already in the hedge. I was like, oh, "How can you miss a river on a road?" But, um, and so I was like, "This is bad." You know? I mean, this is not normal behaviour. Trying to kill yourself. Um. So yeah. The, the, anyway, so yeah. Um, the supporting wounded veterans. They their main aim is to get veterans within um, into meaningful employment. So whether that's you know, volunteering because the veteran is sorted for money or, you know, something that they've always wanted to do. So they helped me out massively. So I had that weight on my shoulders of not wanting to let them down. Um, I I landed on my feet in regards to a location um, just on the sort of border of Dorset in Hampshire in that uh, a lady who, um, a lady and uh, her husband um, own a, a small estate and they let me use sort of 50 acres of woodland um, because their son was involved with the charity in a in a in a way. So I was very lucky that I, you know I'd had everything in place. Um, so that the fear of failure and fear of letting other people down was a massive driving factor. Um, and I'd had a f- <laughs> I'd had a. F- um, a sort of falling out. I, I, I don't know quite how our relationship broke down and I'm still a little bit confused about it, but I did a lot of training with um, a company and I went through their NCFE level four 
program. So I started off, um, you know, on a weekend course and then slowly progressed through and they put me through this teaching thing, which I paid for through the military, which is the, the fundamental reason why I did it because it was free to me. So why not, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I came out the other side and um, when I set up Wild Ray, everything was fine for about a year. And I was sort of having a bit of mentorship and things. And then I don't quite know what happened, but things turned sour. So, and I, and I still don't know why. I still, you know, I, 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 to this day, don't know why. But um, there was a determination as well to sort of not fail because that relationship had turned sour. And I was like, well, I'm going to do this now just to, you've, you're obviously pissed off that I've started a company after training me to tra- to be a trainer. <laughs> um, so I'm not, that was a bit of a personal sort of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fail at this. Mm. This is still going to be carrying on. Um, so yeah, I had those various motivational factors. Um, but the, the main theme running through was it was benefiting me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the, the whole reason the company exists to this day is because teaching, interacting with nature, um, controlling my diary, controlling what I say yes to and what I say no to, allows me to keep control of the crazy that is inside my head trying to get out most of the time. So mm. that's why it still goes on today. Um, and until my wife agrees that we're moving to sort of Sweden and living in a mountain hut somewhere off grid it's going to carry on <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's an interesting question there for me not necessarily just in the context of your personal story but also just generally because sometimes it does surprise people you know they they come along they do some courses they really enjoy it they know they like being outdoors and then they step over to the other side of the fence and then there's all the additional things that you have to contemplate when you're when yeah. you're running a course or running a company that runs courses and you know we've talked about it before on your stream things like risk assessments and and all of those things that maybe people don't always think about so my question really is clearly the interacting with nature part is what's therapeutic you 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 clearly don't mind all the other baggage that comes with stepping over the other side of the fence and because no. some people do even not in your situation they enjoy the courses but then they think they're going to have as great a time as they do when they're on a course as a student when they're teaching a course or yeah. helping to teach a course yeah. and it doesn't work like that no no <laughs> i've got and laugh with customers that you know like bushcraft as a sort of a, as a practitioner or as a as a hobby or, or whatever it is is that you know, you can go off and do more with less. Um, as a bushcraft instructor, I've got more kit than fucking Cotswolds, I think. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just insane the amount of stuff I have to carry into a and, and carry into a sort of a woodland. And when I mean, when I first started, I would start a course on at six o'clock on a Friday, and I would be in the in the sort of on on a track in the middle of nowhere in Dorset, humping jerry cans two kilometres just to get the water to the woodland. Mm. Um, so, I know there were times where I was thinking, why why am I, why am I carrying 25 litres of water to a uh, Sunday afternoon? Why am I cleaning out 
a bloody camping toilet because I can't dig a long drop. You know, why am I doing it? But it, it was never like, oh, well, because you're doing this because you love it, mm. you know. Um, the paperwork side of things, coming from a sort of a military, poli- uh, military police, uh, Royal Air Force police um, background, there was a lot of paperwork involved. Um, and, you know, it, I, I never found it particularly difficult to to write sort of lesson plans or to write risk assessments or you know, I, I don't find that it's tedious. Don't get me wrong. I don't enjoy it. But it's not like, oh, really struggling with this. Mm. Um, and it's like anything. Once you get a template set out, I suppose that it's filling in the details now. Um, but, yeah, that that was a, you know, it was a, an eye-opener that I, I wasn't expecting to, to, the, to be a, that amount of paperwork. But I think if I'd have maybe been less if if people are less conscientious than you know i really wanted to do it i was determined to do it professionally um everything had to be above and beyond and above and you know i crossed t's dotted or not whatever the other way around i's dotted t's crossed (laughs) um uh, and i thought you know i i'm not i'm not gonna cut corners i'm not cutting corners so I'm sure there's people out there that teach that don't have lesson plans that have it all stored in their head, but the courses were getting sort of busier and I was rapidly beginning to realize that I couldn't do this on my own. Um, and I needed to bring in some freelance staff and for, for the, the client, uh, the student to get the same level of delivery from me as they would have done from, from one of the sort of freelancers, I had to have lesson plans because mm-hmm. I had to go, that's what you teach. Yeah. You know, add your own twits, add your own little stories, but that's the subject matter that needs to get across to whether they come on in May or whether they come in November. That's what they need to be taught. Um, uh, so it was, that was a sort of driving factor as well, trying to keep the sort of standards high. Yeah. Um, because I didn't want to be known, certainly don't want to be known within the industry of, of, of around peers of, you know, oh, there's Jumbo the cowboy sort of yeehaw, um, and there was there was a lot of a lot of a lot of that. Um, so yeah, the, the paperwork side of things, but man, the amount of kit cleaning and mm-hmm. sharpening, and I think at one point I had sort of like forty more clippers in the dishwasher <laughs> after a paintbrush session. And my wife's like, "What are you doing? Well, I'm just cleaning the knives." So like, you're not right. This is normal. Wives don't have to deal with it. So I was like, well, you know, you married me. You know what I'm like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot behind it. Um, a lot more. I do obviously a lot more on the computer. So I sit at a desk a lot more than I do actually. Um, I think hours in teaching these days just because of all the other stuff and emails and you know all that sort of jazz um yeah. i'm itching to get back to actually do some teaching as, yeah, as i'm yeah. sure you are after yeah, this this last year has been yeah. quite strange and disrupted absolutely yeah and we we had a little window of opportunity in late summer last year where yeah. we we ran some stuff but yeah it's been very light on on teaching and and trips for the last year as we record this in march 2021 so yeah, yeah sure. in- indeed yeah. indeed so I'm, I'm interested to to i mean we can we can circle back to any of those elements that we've already talked about um uh, as you see fit john but i'm also interested just to talk more generally as, as someone who's come into 
I mean, we call it an industry, but you, you come into a field of, of of teaching, a field of interest, and bushcraft is a is a broad church in a number of ways, both in terms of what subject matter can sit underneath that, but also the different types of people that it attracts in terms of yeah. um, who are interested in elements of it, but also who, who teach it and their reasons for being there. Um, you've i mean i've seen companies come and go and you've stood you've stayed the course and you've talked about some of your reasons for doing that but if other people are in a similar position to say you were um or even just wanting to to look at a career or a part-time career bushcraft instruction what what are some of the main lessons that you've learned you might be able to give some advice to a young person say for example I would say read lots. <laughs> um, um, I uh, try and get yourself, um, you know, some some good, a, a good mentor. I suppose you know, if I could, if I was a younger person and was doing it again, I'd be sort of trying to attach myself to to people that were um, well known experts and respected experts within that field. But um, it just it, it's weird to me. It's um, it's more of a lifestyle, I think, nowadays for me. But if you're wanting to get into the industry, then I would just, you know, do a teaching course for a start and then just be a sponge to information. Um, it's, I don't think being a, a good bushcraft instructor is sort of even necessarily about knowing the most about the subject. Um, Obviously, you need to know more than the students you're delivering. Otherwise, what's the point? But um, it's the way you get it across. I think is is more important. Um, you know, I've, I've met some very, very intelligent, very, very sort of people that hold doctorates within various sort of native tribes and native that. Um, I'm sort of trying to think of the word um, <clears throat> practical archaeology and all that mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But I, I don't think they'd be able to teach someone how to tie the shoelace. Mm. So it's, I think that would probably be my first go and go and learn how to teach, um, and then get stuck into the subject. But but go and you know just go and do it. Go and live it. Go outside. Go on expeditions. Go on go on trips. Um, try and learn something new, sort of relatively regularly, um, and find find your, what makes you tick essentially basically mate you know if, if something really really makes you passionate then dive into it um i love carving spoon carving i'm you know i'm not the best in the world at it but uh i i dove into that until it sort of i thought right yeah i know enough about it now um and I've kind of, I personally have pitched myself as a sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, as a jack of all trades. Um, but that was more from a company development point of view, so I could teach various other things. Mm -hmm. um, but like you say, it's such a massive, encompassing subject that you can go down many rabbit holes, I suppose. And yeah, just get out there, do it, basically. Mm hmm. I think I think yeah, it's not. It's a weird. It's a weird sort of way you say industry or or way to earn a living. It's it attracts 
in the nicest possible way some odd people mm. um and i count myself within that odd spectrum although my to this day my one of my most proudest things is i don't own a wide brim leather hat that <laughs> <laughs> i don't and I, and I never will i never will um but i think yeah just you know go and go and gather some somebody that will take you under their wing um take it seriously but don't take yourself too seriously i think that's that's the main there's too many serious things in this world and let's be honest if you and i and i ground myself regularly but at the end of the day all i mean from my personal point of view i take the subject seriously i take my teaching seriously but all i'm doing at the end of the day as far as i'm concerned is teaching people how to have a good time in the woods mm. i'm not saving lives i'm not i'm not cutting people open and doing brain surgery mm. just saying you know if you rub those sticks together like that you'll get an ember and then you blow it into flame and then pray to god you don't ever need to do it in a survival situation mm. <laughs> it's um so yeah i just get out there and do it essentially mm-hmm. does that answer the question yeah it does because uh, i think for, i think for young people particularly um they they often struggle to see a pathway um because there isn't necessarily an obvious one and I, th- what you've just said is often pretty much what I say, which is there is a difference between doing and teaching and you need to learn how to teach. That's a skill in itself and it should be something you take professional pride in as much as your knowledge of the subject. And that's a transferable skill as well, of course. You know, it's useful, yeah. uh, it's valuable for people to have. And then find a good mentor, find someone that can teach you the skills and the knowledge, as you say, but also by extension if you're working with someone like you or someone like me or with another established school you get to know how things work in terms of how do you organize camp what do you what are the considerations that go on behind the scenes that perhaps you don't see when you're in the thick of it as a as a student and you're just going from one lesson to another or one activity to another there's often things going on behind the scenes things go that go on before the course things that go on after the course you can learn all of those things by working with somebody else that you wouldn't necessarily appreciate until someone shows you. So yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. Um, what about other, other veterans or other people that have maybe already had a career? Is there anything, you know, that maybe want to set their own company up? Are there any, you know, I had the benefit of, um, you know, I worked with, with Woodlaw, I worked with Ray Mears. I worked with some well-known people other than Ray Mears as well, Lars Falt and, you know, learned from a lot of people that I worked with in that period. And then I, I had the benefit of, of that in setting my own company up. And I also had the benefit, I guess, because you kind of almost are forced to name drop in this industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you have to kind of prove your credibility by saying who you've worked with or, you know, it isn't necessarily as clear. You can't just say, oh, well, I did a degree in bushcraft, you know, therefore yeah. I've done my, you know, and there are some, there are now some, you know, level three, level four qualifications and whatnot, the NCFE ones. Um, but it's by no means a national governing body award. Oh, no. So no. You, you need to kind of prove to people that you're justified in standing up in front of them or that, that you're worth listening to one way or another. And I think that's one of the things that people struggle with if they're if they're changing career. So that's that's something that I guess you like I didn't have to deal with that because I I changed career and I went and worked for somebody else for quite some time and with some very well known people that gave me some credibility when I came out of that. Whereas you kind of came in a little bit more 
raw if you if you and you yeah. had to and had to build you know so I, i've got the greatest respect that you you've had to build that from scratch without yeah. relying on other people's reputation so is, is there any advice you'd give to people that were maybe looking to do the same thing not not clearly not wanting to create too many competitors for you but uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just yeah, re just realistic conversation you know yeah yeah um the advice i would give would be um or the, would be dogged determination and not almost being too stupid to know when you've been beat um i didn't have the you know the the i didn't i was i wasn't lucky enough or fortunate enough to i've never met you know i never i've never met the likes of lars felt i've never met ray mears to have a chat sort of thing you know other than a show and a book sign and a shake hand and then off you go so um I was lucky um, in that I could relate to a couple of other instructors within that um, within that program that I went through the the NCFE thing, um, and I was able to bounce ideas off people that were going through the same program. So like a peer to peer sort of um, mutual support, you know, the likes of. Um, there's a, a guy who used to shout out lots of ideas out, Jack Hendry from Serious Outdoor Skills in Cornwall. Um, and and Stacey Allsop um, was a kind of like a mentor um, who had been working for survival school. Um, so I did have some people to bounce things off. And I think that um, the advice I would give anyone that wanted to do it would be you need to generate that networking and contacts. And it's something that the military push when you're starting to leave is that network, 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 and try and build relationships in Civvy Street. Um, and, and be as honest as you possibly can with these people because um, this industry seems very, you know, the, the, the bushcraft world seems very um, good at seeing through bullshit, um, whether they're not, whether it's not particularly good at sort of thinning it out is another matter. But um, <laughs> surrounding yourself with, if somebody wanted to start a company, then um, just get on and do it, man. I mean, mm. it's not, it's not, nothing is stopping you starting. I mean, nothing is stopping you starting a, a, a veteran or anyone from that matter starting up a company. But I would really seriously consider it if you don't have personal integrity. Um, and I think that's, I think that's really important that um, that you you do that people with their setting something up do it honestly and with good motivation um, or good intention. Sorry, because I think people need to have a responsibility to quality um, and teach correct. And there's a lot of sort of I found there's a lot of myths um, uh, myths or bad practice or I'm trying to think of the phrase, you know, there's a lot of apocryphal tales out there. If that makes, if that makes more sense. Um, so yeah, if you were going to start something after leaving the forces, you need to surround yourself with people that are, I reckon, yeah, they're already doing it and leech off free information. Mm -hmm. Um, the amount of, I mean, you probably have it yourself. We get a lot of, I get a lot of emails and phone calls asking to become volunteers to, you know, put the wood on the campfire and keep the kettle topped up, which is great. And out of, you know, the, 
nine times out of ten the people that we get come and go and literally you know oh it's actually quite a lot of work or yeah that's you know surprise you're not just here just to leech free information but when you get a good one who's super keen um i mean one of the guys that started years ago um were very very first started putting the wood on the campfire and um and now he's sort of we've trained him up to sort of teach and he's gone off and he's starting his own he started his own sort of phasey woodcraft carving and he's teaching people how to he specialized in spoon carving and he's bloody good at it um so you know he he's managed to do it it's not to say that so there is there are pathways you can find you just have to touch base with the right people yeah 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 i mean i think and that's that's a that's a a universal message because of course um you know people listening to this uh, not just in the uk they're all you know they're in the in the states in canada australia all around the world and so yeah i think that applies i mean it's it's clearly easier in some places than others to find um schools or or men- mentors but equally it's the same principle find somebody that can help you on that pathway one way or another uh, i think that def- yeah that definitely from a veteran point of view is that um you need to be honest with your if you find someone that's willing to sort of invest a bit of time and you know sit around a campfire and take you canoeing and go on expeditions that you need to be honest with them that you know, my end goal might be to start my own school one day um, as opposed to, and I feel quite strongly about this, as opposed to sort of becoming a, a, a leech and getting all the information and all that sort of stuff and then just going off and, you know, like, thanks very much, I've used you for what I need and move on and crack on. I think that that's, that, that would be one um one thing I'd say to anybody starting from scratch is that it is a small, small group of people that are doing this in the UK relatively compared to other sort of industries and that to treat people how you want to be treated yourself. I think, I mean, that just goes general good advice for life, doesn't it? But yeah, treat uh, people on the way up as you, you know, as you want absolutely. them to treat you on the way down kind of thing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that's a new thing for, that's a thing for veterans is that they, they've come from this big organization where there is a clear rank structure and and um, they've got their clear job and and you're working as part of the team to keep that ethos when there's when you're in Civvy Street is actually stands you in really good stead to know that there's things that are bigger than you even in Civvy Street it might not seem like it um, to you to to the start um, the thing that surprised me about Civvy Street the most is that everyone wants to make money and, mm-hmm. I, and I mean that genuinely it's like because I joined 18, and I didn't do it for money. I went out every month. There was a, there's, you know, there was money put in my account, and I just carried on doing what I was doing. It wasn't until a good sort of three or four years in Civvy Street that I started to think, actually, everyone's just chasing a buck. Everyone just wants to make money, and and that was really useful for me in that it cleared a lot of fog around why people behave the way some people do. So he just wants to, they, he, she, they, it, just want to make some money. Mm. Um, and that made a lot of decisions a lot easier. Um, I've also known people that are basically are completing our knobheads because it's, hey, it's just business. So yeah, um, it's that's, not, characters, that's just characters in life, I think. Yeah, but it's not an excuse for kind of uh, psychopathic behavior, is it? No. It's just business. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, you still have to be a human being. Absolutely. First and Absolutely. foremost. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's good advice. I think, you know, from my perspective, you asked about whether or not I have people asking to be volunteers, and yeah, we do we do have people. And I think sometimes people feel that they've got more of a chance if they offer to volunteer than if they somehow apply for a paid position. And I think don't if you want if you want to do it as a career, then ask if there are any paid positions. I mean, because sometimes someone offering to volunteer can can say so they sometimes can be more trouble than they're worth. It's just another yeah, yeah, person. But- if you've already got a team that functions properly in the woods and they yeah. know how everything works and they know how everything um where everything goes another person that doesn't in in amongst all of that isn't necessarily helpful no no i completely agree yeah yeah, yeah. Um, um and some of the, the the best i think the best advice i'd give to anybody that was looking at um that was trying to sort of become part of a team in that environment would be constantly think of what is needed next yes the amount of people that just stand around and like what are you doing? Well, well, I've, I've, no one's told me what to do. Well, mate, just go and if, if in doubt, collect firewood. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be needed, and that's that was a real key indicator to me that I'd found a right group of people because I would turn around and go, as the as the the poiki or the big witch's cauldron, has that, has that been cleaned? Yes, yeah, done. Yeah. Uh, is a firewood split? Yeah, it's already done. Yeah. Oh right. Um, well done. Exactly the same. <laughs> or you come off teaching a lesson for an hour and a half and you've got 15 minutes break or something and they have the kettle hot, you know, it's stuff, yes. yeah, stuff it's like that. Like, yeah. Oh, I really like you. Yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah absolutely. And, uh, and that only, yeah. and those jobs only get harder when it's yeah. pissing down with rain. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, if anybody was a youngster was don't stand around, like if in doubt, if you've not got anything to do, ask somebody, yeah. Or, or go and collect firewood. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, and that's a skill you have to. I mean, as as a, as a course leader or an expedition leader, you have to be thinking two steps ahead. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. Like, what needs to be done? What are the considerations? You know, and the more people you have around you that also think that way, the the easier it makes your job as the leader or the or the instructor. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you you know when. I mean, personally for me, I you, I know when I've got a good team together when after say like a weekend or a week's trip i still feel relatively refreshed yeah and i go what's happened what oh we've we're all done everything's done yeah they've gone home actually that wasn't that too bad actually <laughs> you know that's why i think you know you're like, yeah, i've got everything slick and mm. also it's almost i find it's a little bit eerie sometimes but like, everything's going too well <laughs> what have we missed do you know, I don't know if you ever get that, but I, I just like, well, we must have missed something. Yeah, we must it's, have missed, missed the whole lesson out or something. It's <laughs> yeah. Too, yeah, it's all it's all going too smoothly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I never used to have volunteers. I always used to just recruit people and, um, and pay them right from the start. But I actually found that that was hindering me after a while. So we do have volunteers now and we... My, my approach is that I recruit people who want to volunteer and then if they're good volunteering for a year, then I look to give them a, a, a contracting role, you know, where I pay them. Yeah. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is I can train more people more quickly that way. If I have to consider paying somebody as an assistant, then I have to justify their their part of the team on a particular course. Whereas if I don't have, if I just have to feed them, 
yeah. and they might get some firewood for me and I can help start to show them the ropes or some of the, the assistant instructors can show them the ropes, then they can come and volunteer on as many courses as they like. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you can get yeah. them up. So that there are, so I've, I've kind of come around on my thinking of volunteers because I always, um, I always wanted to have a fair trade for people's time, but I found that ultimately with people who are keen, they want to do lots and I want them to do lots and I want them to get the experience so that they're useful to us as a team. Then having that entry level of a, of a, of a volunteer is very useful and that's something we do. But I still, I'm still quite selective about who I, who I choose. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think anybody, wherever they're listening to this, if you're a young person or an older person, if you do want to go and help out or get, a job, a part-time job or whatever with a bushcraft school or a survival school or, or wherever, try and explain to them what you might be able to do to help because th there's nothing there's nothing that rings an alarm bell more than someone who says, I want to come and volunteer so that I can learn more from you. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can learn more from me, mate, by booking on a course. course can... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I admire the honesty, but I don't think it's necessarily always that intentional. That you know, no, I just, no. um, it's like, how can you add value to me and the students on the courses? That's that's what I'm interested in. Yes, you yeah, know, absolutely. How, how can you bring some value to the team? Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, yeah. that's. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is kind of job job application one hundred and one, really, isn't it? But I don't see it a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is a. I think it's it's well meaning. Um, it makes almost. I think a lot of people that I've had come through as, as like ask for, to be volunteers um, have have felt that it's a fair trade, um, and that them you know doing cleaning the pots and. Um, collecting the firewood and whatever else needs sort of doing around camp um, is actually a fair trade for them sitting on a sitting in the background on a lesson occasionally and and to the and and that's something that you know I've done in the past right if you've if everything is done mm -hmm. um, and there's nothing else going on and and one of the I'm teaching or or Jack's teaching or you know Craig's teaching go and hang around in the background. Mm -hmm. Um, and and sponge it up but the first time i see you sort of minging in the background of a lesson and the fire's gone out and the pots are still minging then that alarm bells ring for me yeah. and, and and generally they they sort of don't end up coming back so yes it is a, it is a really good way to get to get knowledge um but but as a volunteer just remember that I suppose that you're for, first and foremost there to volunteer to work. Yes. Volunteer to get to a learn. Free. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a question of priorities, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, that's that's important. So you clearly found your time in the woods therapeutic. You found interacting with nature therapeutic. Do you now? You're eight years down the line with Wildway. Do you do you find teaching seeing other people succeed with those things also therapeutic um maybe not from a a, a mental health personal like personally it doesn't benefit my mental health mm -hmm. um or the ptsd um it's a, i think a different part of me that that enjoys people 
um, achieving uh, and learning new things. Um, it, without sounding too corny, it's sort of lights a fire in a in a different part. It's it, it's um, it's great. I really enjoy it, and it's it's really fulfilling. Um, whether it sort of helps my personal m- mental health, but I don't necessarily think it does. I never feel. Um, I norm solitude really helps my mental health. Mm-hmm. Like you know, so when we're around teaching, I love. I keep the courses small because I like. I like to control that, um, and I think it's better. But um, it's a different part. It's a bit of personal pride, I think, or um, professional pride mm-hmm. um, that I that I feel when people achieve. So let's say let's use a sort of um, ember for the first time, or or they finally learn how to do a. a an Avenki hitch or or their carving comes on or whatever it's like or they can you know whatever it is it's like personal pride of going like you know I've I've taught them that um and and they get in there suddenly I find real joy in suddenly their sort of blinkers coming off to what is possible in a, in a sort of a woodland environment because that's mainly where I sort of operate mm-hmm. and to see that like Whoa! What do you mean? Do you mean you can make you can eat nettles and make string out of them? And what? Uh, that sort of that reaction and that pure joy when the best. I mean, the best the best reaction I've ever seen in the woodland was this. Was a young woman. She was been about twenty five years old. She's bowing away um, on doing friction firelighting, and I was at the other side of the camp, and she blew this tinder bundle into an ember, and then she just stood up. Screamed at the top of the voice, her voice, I am the original bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, looking around, like, what's the matter? She just got her first ember. And that was real, like, it's real, real pride and real happiness for her. Um, and that that's an amazing feeling. Does it make the demons go away in my head? No. Um, I I find that the, the best way to do that is, is within the company of a couple of really close friends and, um, or even with other sufferers of post-traumatic stress or mental health issues, um, or sort of being on my own, um, really helps me to sort of like quiet down and acknowledge the feelings that I'm feeling. Um, but I do understand the question, and you know, because uh, you must, you must, you must get joy from seeing people do the same sort of thing. I think as a teacher, it's it's kind of fundamental to what we do. Yeah, I do absolutely, I do. But I was interested whether or not there was there were additional benefits there for you given given your uh, condition and so my follow-on question then and you've kind of partly answered it already you, you therefore need to still make time for yourself in taking yourself away and having a bit yeah. of time in, in nature because that one of the other things that can happen and i've seen it happen to a few people is that you're drawn to outdoor teaching because you enjoy the outdoors regardless you know nothing necessarily more troubling than that you just you enjoy being outdoors you want to work outdoors you find a pathway into teaching um whatever it is that you teach outdoors but then you find that all you're doing is teaching outdoors and you're not enjoying the outdoors for on on your own terms for your own sake exactly yeah Yeah. so i suppose it's like the the gardener who does gardening all day long and has got a jungle in his back garden (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly that i need i i specifically need to make time to go and be to go and you know because it, it is a hobby um i'm very lucky in regards that my hobby is my profession but it's still 
a work. Mm-hmm. You know, there's still the burden of I've got to make sure, you know, there's a lot of sort of not stress, but a lot of pressure as as a course, someone delivering a course, as you well know. Um, and sometimes after a course, I will stay in the woods on my own for a couple of nights um, just because I've not, although I've been out and I've been sleeping in the woods and stuff, I've not been experiencing what I want to experience in the woods. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, I often feel like when a, when a course is gone um, or, or, or guests have gone or whatever, that me, and sometimes it feels like the woodlanders sort of breathed a sigh of relief and gone, um, that, you know, that, that it's back to quiet and the sort of animals come out and all that, sort of, you know, the birds nestle back in and, and yeah, and I, and I need that. I, I need that. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, I need personal time. I don't think that's just knowing how what your body needs or what your head needs in in general. Making no matter what walk of life you're in, if you don't make time for yourself, then you know what's what's the point? Yeah, yeah. No, I I agree, and I think it's something that's very particularly with the pressures of life in the modern world. It's very easy to lose sight of that, um, and I think that's maybe more generally why people first find their way into bushcraft because I, I, I don't know about you I, I don't know how you you pitch your courses um, or if you have particular demographics that you go for I mean we we don't particularly run courses for you know corporates or we don't sort of target veterans or any particular groups we just have public courses and you know people come along and people have varied reasons for being there but it often is that they feel like they've got a disconnect with the natural world yeah absolutely and and, and ours is much the same as i will shout about this till the cows come home and we'll welcome everybody from you know uh well everyone you know mm. it's no matter what you are we've had you know much like you i imagine managing directors of massive companies that have come along because they've driven a desk and now they've like retiring we've had single mothers who have been worried that the world is about to end and they would need to know how to feed their children rabbits so there's come on all sorts of reasons um but generally the running the underlying theme is that there has been a disconnect with nature and they they want to reconnect and i think that that whole thing is in the public zeitgeist at the moment with the reconnecting rewilding you know looking after climate change and all that you know whatever your views are on it are um if you don't believe in it you're wrong but it's um it's uh you know all that sort of stuff so yeah it's that reconnect with nature that that, that drives people yeah. um yeah. To, to come yeah 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 well, i think it's important that we continue to facilitate that for people absolutely absolutely so what's without giving away any secrets what's what's next for you you say you take every day as it comes but do you have any particular um, plans i know you, you do some canoeing stuff don't you yeah you do, you do your courses so my um yeah we do we're going canoeing in may we do the spay and looks much like yourselves um and we we do the great glen which gives people i think two choices of whether they want to actually you know paddle and get the big sky views or the excitement of the white water but um what's next for me i would love to um do some overseas expeditions um i would love uh, to be able to offer uh, a winter 
some form of winter expedition, be it. I really like the idea of, of snowmobiling on a journey mm-hmm. uh, with some snowshoeing and some hot tenting. Um, something that I don't have a vast amount of experience in myself. So um, I would look at maybe partnering up with some somebody. I mean, I'm I'm not about to take people into ridiculously cold environments if I'm not an expert in that environment myself. So, um, but some some summer trip canoeing trips. Um, yeah, so some of the bigger sort of bigger expedition overseas stuff um, in the near, you know, you know, next two two three years. Mm-hmm. But, um, but other than that, there's you know, there's not really a massive amount that I have in the pipeline. Um, I'm developing a birch bark container course at the moment. Um, we managed to find a supplier of birch bark from Russia, so we mm. we ship all that in. And I know there's bark you can use in the UK, but you know ash and whatever else. And that. but it's that birch bark feel. You know, it's really like that quintessential thing, isn't it? But, no, but it's see, quite a unique material, and you, the thickness makes a huge difference. And you yeah. need it from the cold places. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. So there's there's a few things in the pipeline, but um, I'm going to get myself on some personal expeditions. I turn I'm 39 in May, so I turn 40 in a year, just over a year's time. So I want to get myself out to Canada um, on a canoeing expedition. I keep I keep looking um, to join you and Mr. Goodwin. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, I, you know, it's been difficult to earn a living this year. Um, yeah, I get it. Um, so yeah, they're, they're, that's my, they're my to-do things is to, to start to get a bit... Um, overseas and i'd really i mean it's a it's a bit of a personal sort of dream and ambition but i'd really like to go and spend a bit of time with um with the sort of sami um and just on a personal level Mm. um uh, and sort of really dive into into that really but again it's create the, the the issue i have is that i don't have the like you said earlier on i don't have the 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 super experienced people that i can phone up and go or, or, or generated those contacts um, in the past. So, you know, the, the Facebook, the Instagram Live and all that sort of stuff was a, a a way of being able to talk to the people like yourselves and generate some more contacts and um, not try and out-compete. I'm not, I'm not in it for, I'm not in it for sort of competing. I'm not in it for the sort of money. I, you know, it's not about that to me. It's about the... the the journey that as it was cliches as it sounds but i just want to go and have some fun man. I've had a, mm-hmm. in all in all seriousness i've had a pretty shitty past 15 years where i've seriously contemplated killing myself i've had ropes around my neck but not had the balls to do it um and i just want to go out there and you know and live my passion mm. um and if i can take a few people with me along the way then more the better yeah I mean, it's the only reason i started canoeing expeditions is because i liked canoeing and i thought hey i wonder if other people would like to come and do some canoeing so i put it out there on a facebook post and lo and behold some people decided that they were going to give me some money to take them canoeing mm-hmm. so that's that's the sort of that's yeah. how I sort and of you, roll and you've done that properly as well because you've done you know you've done your training and all oh that yeah, absolutely. yeah 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 yeah, which is important. Yeah. Which is important for people to understand that there are some things 
you do there are some hoops you need to jump through in certain areas yeah, of outdoor yeah, instruction. I'm gonna take some people canoeing. Yeah, there are a few like loopholes and stuff you gotta you gotta sort yeah. out. Um yeah, and that was one of the more um stressful uh assessments I think I've ever had is the the white water not the the open water canoeing with Ray Goodwin was my assessor on that and it was absolutely fine. No problems at all. Very laid back and but my my white water section of it, the river section of the four star when I did it was a uh, I can't remember his name now. Jules Bernard. Right. I don't know if you've ever met him, but yep. he would sit in his boat with his arms crossed. Well, I'm doing this because we're on camera, but it's not going to be shown. But he's sitting in his boat with his <laughs> arm crossed with a very blank face, and you'd perform this maneuver on the river or something, and he would just mm-hmm and paddle off and you're like i don't know whether that's good or bad <laughs> so that was um that was that was yeah that was one of the more like stressful assessments i think i've ever done in my time but um, but yeah he's, he's ex-military as well isn't he Charles? yeah well he had a green bergen that normally indicates yeah. something <laughs> so camouflage something indicates normally yeah um yeah 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 inscrutable inscrutable assessors they're always the hardest ones you know you don't know whether you're doing well or not yeah no absolutely they're, they're, yeah. Worst. they're the worst <laughs> I, I mean i would like to do my five star but living down in dorset there's not a massive amount of white water i can get on no. regularly to really up my skills so um no i'm quite happy Some doing good stuff in devon when the water levels are right but yeah i'm the same i I, i've done my five-star training i've never done the assessment um i was booked to do the assessment a couple of years ago and then one of the people that should have been on my assessment was ill and then somebody else couldn't make it and so they cancelled the assessment and the next one i couldn't do and yeah i just never and then i haven't been i've been paddling at that level for a couple of winters really now because i was away a lot last the previous winter and now you know we've had covid and I've done very little paddling this winter, so. Yeah. And, and for our overseas listeners, particularly in North America, yes, we do paddle in the winter because our rivers don't freeze. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but no, it's it's great, and I, I'm glad you enjoy taking people doing that as well. I I enjoy. I mean that that's always been Ray, Ray's and mine um, approach when we do the trips that we do, particularly the overseas trips. It's like what adventures do we want to have yeah and, and not do it in a cynical way of like let's get some people to pay for it it's, it's more <laughs> a case of like what would interest us what would scratch our itch because if it scratches our itch then it probably scratches some other people's itches Absolutely. as well and let's get some like-minded people together and have some fun doing it because yeah life's yeah. too short really otherwise uh, you know, uh, yeah 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 Yeah. absolutely and some i've got some great friends that are actually um have actually been customers in the past and they've come Mm -hmm. through on courses and you know kept contact um and now are really really good friends so yeah there is a like-minded that that meeting those like-minded people um is is great Uh, it's one of the the plus sides you know one of the, the the mega epic plus sides of is that you meet these people that share the same passion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which you wouldn't get if you were working in a pie factory, perhaps. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you would not. No, no. It's been two kilograms of sterling steak stolen out of the yeah. fridge. Oh, yeah. get a life. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I find what you say that you will get the single mum, you will get the managing director, you'll get the bricklayer and the artisan woodworker and the IT guy. 
at, all on one course and they're all yeah. human beings and you I, I don't think there are many professions that you're exposed to that range of different characters and other professions as, no. as what we do because you get into some really interesting conversations around the campfire with people absolutely yeah and and, that, and it's great you know you learn i learn so much about the world from other from customers mm. um or from those types of people um jobs that i didn't even know existed um bizarre bizarre um jobs and but yeah the 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 fundamental bit of it is the the deep down passion for the outdoors yeah. um which is which is great which is absolutely fantastic i mean the, the bizarrest job i think i've ever seen or i've ever had on the course was um was a political advisor who was advising um the, the home secretary at the time it was when there was some massive thing going off in parliament amber amber rudd amber mm -hmm. rudd yeah or other. anyway um She'd been thrown under the bus by Theresa May and his phone was going off the hook. <laughs> he was there. And we're talking, one minute we're talking about what makes the best, how to make the best cowboy coffee. And then the next minute his phone's ringing and he's giving Amber Rudd advice over the phone. <laughs> like, this is proper bizarre. Yeah. But he just loved the outdoors. You know, he loved it. And he living in London and couldn't wait to get out of London. And that surprised me. The amount of people that live in an area and work a job that they don't really like just so they can go off and do what they do like at the, at the weekends. Yeah. Which I, I think is quite bizarre, but then I'm quite fortunate enough to be doing what I want to do. Mm. So yeah, people do get stuck on their hamster wheel a bit longer than they want to. Sometimes that's the thing. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad you found your place, John, and you found something that, that meets your needs. And I think that I hope is an inspirational story for other people that are maybe suffering with the same things. And also just more, generally for people who want to pursue a career in the outdoors one way or another whether it's bushcraft specifically or other areas that you can you know share a passion with i hope people find that useful and interesting um where can people find out more about you john websites um, oh, yeah, social so etc and i'll put links to that on on my web page as well so yeah so the, the website is wildwaybushcraft.co.uk um for the blog and the courses and all that sort of stuff um instagram again it's dead original wildway bushcraft um <laughs> facebook page uh youtube channel that we're just starting to sort of add videos to um yeah there's a fairly sort of the usual stuff um and then email john at wildway bushcraft but um yeah they're, they're the sort of normal as you would expect every sort of every outlet to be to have these days that's um, useful it's useful yeah it's yeah it's it's um yeah it's nice to be able to be to be contacted to be fair and yeah. just to put out there that i'm not you know don't be put off by coming on a course for a while i'm not some psychopathic mental axe weirdo in the woods um i'm more likely to get scared and cry in the corner to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> anything. so um yeah no, yeah. I think that's I think that's important because I mean we we read we read the the letters PTSD a lot, don't we, in the press these days. Um, yeah. It has come a long way in terms of you know recognition in wider society that it, that it exists and that it's something that people suffer with. But equally, I think there isn't necessarily a great understanding of it, how it manifests, or how yeah. people cope with it, or or how people are, are left afterwards. Yeah, it's essentially a a reaction to a the doctors say it's a reaction to a traumatic traumatic um, life threatening event. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, and your brain gets stuck somewhere between fight or flight, um, and it gets stuck in this sort of high alert stage um, where, because it's gone so far and you've nearly died, it won't let you ever sort of, everything's a threat. If, in, in the, I know we're wrapping things up, but quite um, in layman's terms, it's been overprotected. Mm-hmm. So you don't get in that situation. Essentially, that's that's what it is, um, which is why medication and normally antidepressants, which help release the serotonin, which um, makes you feel better, which numbs. Um, they're not. They're, people say they're happy pills, but they're not. They just stop feeling. Mm. Um, so um, you can... In my reaction to winning the lottery and being told that, you know, my house is burnt to the ground would probably be, oh, right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like you don't really feel highest of highs and lowest Mm. of lows. Mm. Um, But um, that's probably a good thing because the lowest of lows that I've felt are pretty bad. Um, So I'll I'll take that. So, yeah, it's nothing to be fearful of uh, at all. It's... um, and the more people talk about it, the less of the, the well, I don't know, the curtains get drawn back and you find out that it's just an old man pulling some levers, you know? Yeah. And I think, you know, we don't want there to be a stigma around these things. And I think, as you say, you don't want people to be frightened to approach you or anybody else that's been open about the problems that they've they've had and, and their mental health. And I think the more people understand it, the, the better. So thank you for being open and honest and, and sharing your your story john i really appreciate it thank you no problems well thanks for giving us the opportunity to, to spout about it <laughs> <laughs> no my pleasure my pleasure and and people should definitely subscribe to your instagram so that they don't miss out on any of those great chats either with me <laughs> yeah. or with all the other guests that you've had so that's been a great thing you've been doing so yeah thanks very much we'll have to uh, we'll have to have another chat on there sometime soon yeah. as soon as start something well there's no it seems to be no shortage of slightly contentious issues around bushcraft for us to talk about it seems they yeah. seem to pop up on a fairly regular basis so. yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> um they sure do yeah yeah good stuff all right, <laughs> all right. take care buddy thanks take a lot. Care, mate. all the best cheers Bye-bye. well thanks again to john for sharing his story hope you found it illuminating The recordings of the live chats that we've done on John's Instagram feed are still available the last time I looked, so do check those out. All the links mentioned in the podcast today can be found on the page on my website dedicated to this episode at paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 52 forward slash podcast 52. If you liked this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to my podcasts on your favourite podcast platform. That's important so that you get updates, you get that feed coming to you, whether it's on Apple, whether it's on Android. There's many podcast services, many podcast apps now that my podcast is distributed to. So find it on your favourite platform, subscribe. That helps me out, but it also makes sure that you don't miss an episode. And if you're not already subscribed to my email updates, then please do so via my site at paulkirtley.co.uk. There's a ton of free information on my site and there's a sign-up form pretty much on every single page on that site. And as a member of my email tribe, you'll be among the first to know about not only new podcasts, but also new Q&A sessions, Ask Paul Kirtley's, and new videos 
new articles, new photo blogs, everything that I put on that site, you'll be informed when that is out. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. I look forward to bringing you the next podcast in this series before too long. Until then, take care, enjoy the outdoors and speak to you soon.